Uh, good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the National Library. My name's Alex Philp. I'm the Director of Overseas Collections Management here at the Library, and it's my absolute pleasure to welcome you all here today. As we begin, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of this land. I thank the elders, past and present, for caring for this land we are now privileged to call home. This weekend is our first experience China weekend, where we will explore Chinese culture, cuisine, art, landscape and architecture, and the Chinese diaspora, as part of our public programming for the wonderful exhibition upstairs, Celestial Empire, Life in China, 1644 to 1911. Celestial Empire and its public programs would not be possible without the support of a tremendous group of partners. It's been an extraordinary collaboration between government, commercial partners and individual donors. First and foremost, I'd like to thank the National Library of China for sharing its extraordinary collection with us and with you. I hope, we will, I hope you will all take the opportunity to visit the exhibition this afternoon and many more times before the 22nd of May. I'd like to thank our partners, Shell in Australia, The Seven Network, Wanda One, Optus Singtel, Huawei, Cathay Pacific, TFE Hotels, and our event partners, the A News Centre for China and the World, and the Asia Society Australia, for their generosity. I thank our government partners, the Australian Government, for support through the National Collecting Institution's Touring Outreach Program, and the Australia China Council, and the ACT Government through Visit Canberra. Importantly, I'd like to thank all of you for coming along this afternoon to hear Michelle Law and Benjamin Law. No doubt some of you will already feel like you know them from their on-screen counterparts in The Family Law, or perhaps from reading Ben's book of the same name, which the series is based on. Some of you may have read a bit more about Michelle in the Q&A on the library's blog last week. This afternoon, Ben and Michelle will share personal experiences and stories from growing up in a Chinese family in Australia. Ben and Michelle are both prolific writers, and their work ranges from journalism and scholarly articles to non-fiction books and screenwriting. The words carry power beyond the page, inspiring laughter and tears, drawing us into a sense of understanding and familiarity, creating bonds through universally shared experiences and emotions. Michelle's writing crosses both fiction and non-fiction, centering on themes of identity, gender and race. She's been published in anthologies, Women of Letters, Destroying the Joint and Growing Up Asian in Australia as well as in other publications, including the Griffith Review, The Lifted Brow and Mianjin. She received an Australian Writers Guild Augie Award for her interactive media work and her films have been screened on the ABC and at local and international film festivals. She's a well-known speaker on social issues. Her TEDx Southbank Women's Talk, A Bald Woman's Guide to Survival, has been viewed over 30,000 times on YouTube. At the moment, she's working with La Boite Theatre Company on her first stage play. As I mentioned earlier, Ben's book, The Family Law, published in 2010, has been adapted for television and has begun screening on SBS to a thunderously positive response. Both The Family Law and his second book, Geisha, Adventures in the Queer East, have been nominated for Australian Book Industry Awards. Like Michelle, he's contributed to one of the Women of Letters anthologies and readers of Good Weekend, Frankie Magazine and The Monthly will be familiar with his work. Ben and Michelle have also contributed on a, uh, sorry, collaborated on a book, the 2014 comedy Shit Asian Mothers Say. <laughs> and if my mum was here, I hope she'd forgive me. 
joining me in, in conversation this afternoon is Andrea Ho, the Editorial and Operational Manager for 666 ABC Canberra Local Radio. Andrea has been working in radio all over Australia for more than 20 years, having been bitten by the radio bug as a student. In 2015, she was awarded a fellowship with the Winston Churchill Memorial Trust, which she will use to investigate practical strategies for improving cultural diversity in broadcast media. Please welcome to the stage, Andrea Ho, Benjamin Law and Michelle Law. quite an audience today. Thank you yeah. to so many Canberrans for turning out to see Michelle and Ben today for the talk. Uh, and it's actually been lovely to catch up with them prior to us sitting down. So I have a little list of questions prepared, but really I think we're going to have quite a free-flowing conversation this afternoon. And towards the end, we'll have the opportunity as well for you to ask several questions if you would like. I don't know, maybe we'll answer everything or maybe we'll just <laughs> talk on for so long you'll all be rushing for the door or something along those lines. But anyway, I do encourage you to think of some things that you'd like to ask based on our conversation today or what you might have seen in the family law or what you might have read in any number of uh, the books or articles because it's a rare opportunity to actually have a bit of an insight into anyone's personal life, let alone uh, the life of people growing up situated between several cultures, I think. <laughs> but that's increasingly a part of our lives in Australia. So take the opportunity to gain a bit of understanding with two people who are incredibly open and frank and very funny to boot. Um, apparently nothing is off limits except for comments. Questions is what we're after. So take your 45 <laughs> minutes to have a bit of a think and uh, we'll go from there. Um, Michelle and Ben, I think it's quite tempting to ask what was it like to grow up in a Chinese family in Australia? But Looking at your published work and looking <laughs> at, uh, at the family law, I actually think that it's been more about you growing up in Australia, of which being Chinese is a part, yeah. and then the rest of it is actually about growing up. So what are your reflections on growing up as Australians? Well, it's funny, you know, when we were growing up, we were in coastal Queensland. Um, this is a Sunshine Coast, about an hour and a half north of Brisbane. And I always do question the logic of my parents, neither of whom can swim, uh, moving to a place with, frankly, murderous beaches surrounding us constantly. But that's where they moved. And at the time, um, you know, the Sunshine Coast then, and even still now, to an extent, is, was quite monocultural as mm. well. They were one of a handful of Chinese-Australian or Asian-Australian Asian uh, couples there at the time. And then they... They did what migrants did so well, which is to breed. Uh, and they had, <laughs> uh, they had five of us in quick mm. succession. And we, I think we had a really Australian upbringing yeah. that was flavoured with, of course, um, Chinese culture as well. And I think, you know, growing up, you'd be asked, do you feel more Australian? Do you feel more Chinese? And it's something that I think a lot of us probably in this room have wrestled with or been asked or confronted with, like what part of your identity do you identify with more? And as I've grown up, I've realised, well, actually identify with them equally mm. and just as everyone in this room can probably identify with being a colleague and a mother and, you know, someone who is a part of their book club and, you know, who, who's, a, who's a sister, or all of those things, uh, we don't have any uh, stresses in terms of managing those different aspects of our identity and 
I don't think I necessarily did to a huge extent, but maybe that's because there were power in numbers. Yeah. <laughs> there were a lot of us. Well, to be honest, Ben and I are really just a pair of bogans. Pretty much. <laughs> um, yeah. Especially growing up in Queensland. I think that really sort of magnified Queensland. the... Queensland. Queensland. Right. That really magnified the Sorry Australian-ness. <laughs> um, I really loved growing up in Australia. Um, you know, the, you have that sort of wild freeness and that connection to the landscape and you really do take um, things things like beaches and all these natural wonders for granted. Hmm. Um, Even and though they scared us. <laughs> it's such a free environment to grow up in and it's so beautiful. It, and I guess, you know, the, our Chinese heritage was something that sort of complemented that as well. Hmm. Was there ever a point at which uh, you realised that you were different? Because when you grow up in your hmm. own family, and this is the case for all of us, before you actually socialise to the rest of the world, you know, your family is your microcosm and it's only when you go outside the home and start to meet other people that you realise that your family's not the same as the one down the road and yeah. so on. Is that a, a point at which you started to think about your Chineseness? Mm, I think growing up on the Sunshine Coast, that was quite confronting at times. In what um, way? It being quite a monoculture yeah. and we were one of the sort of very few Chinese families on the Sunshine Coast at the time. Yeah, you'd be looked at sometimes. Yeah. I mean, I recently went back there and I saw my first um, woman in a hijab and I'm like, oh my God, what <laughs> is this like for you? Because <laughs> I remember what it was like for us in the 1990s and... <laughs> Poor you. Um, <laughs> and so, yeah, it, it's... Um, what what you know, did you notice? What stood out? Uh, well, you know, like, I was actually having this conversation with a friend the other day, and she was saying that, you know, were there periods growing up, because she's Asian-Australian as well, and were there periods growing up where you just sort of forgot that you were Chinese? Mm. And I... And I totally got what she was talking about, but I don't think you ever forget that you're Chinese because you look in the mirror and there's your yeah. face. Um, and it's, it's also not, because but you don't look in the mirror all day, do you? Yeah, but, but, but <laughs> I think what she was talking about is something that I identify with, which is, did you ever forget that you were different? Mm. That's, that's the thing that she was getting at. And totally, I forgot all the time, but I think it changed because... You know, 1980s, difference was really cool. I, I, I started going to school in 1988, so World Expo in Brisbane. Mm -hmm. Multiculturalism <laughs> was really awesome. Uh, so that was almost a part of my popularity, I reckon, okay. my difference. And then... <laughs> I'm just saying, I'm just saying. Just claiming it. I'm just claiming it. <laughs> but then it, then it turned. Then it turned. So then, then 1990s was Hansenism in yeah. Queensland. You know, she was, she was strong in our state. Mm -hmm. and, and our um, neighbours were big Hansen supporters. Oh, our neighbours? Like how the, do how you did that play out for you? Do you remember the One oh. Nation vans rocking up at school? Because our parents, like the kids' parents were, not our parents, the kids' parents were rocking up in One Nation vans because they were running for candidacy as well. It was like, oh. well, this is uncomfortable. I think I blocked that out of my memory. <laughs> but I, I don't think I, I didn't have that sort of blissful period that you did. I have of the difference Sorry. being, <laughs> you know, a point of popularity. I think because I was born in 1990 and I was sort of born into this bed of controversy with, you know, One Nation and things and... I just always remember being different and it was mm. often t other people pointing it out to me or just the looks that you'd get if you were talking to your siblings at the shops and they'd be like, oh my God, you know, they have Australian accents. They will look this, we have this in-joke where it's when you get one of those looks, it's like they've seen a talking fish. <laughs> <laughs> it's a talking fish. So we'll often be in a regional town and get these looks and just look at each other and be like, it's a talking fish. <laughs> <laughs> So you get the looks. And, and this is just a little bit of an insight, I think, into what a person's life is like. So you get these looks, right? Mm. Or people make these comments to you. You were born in Australia. I mean, this is, this is your country. How do, you how do you react to someone who does that to you? I usually up the ante on the Bogan accent. <laughs> <laughs> get really ochre. Um, but it's, it's often just a sense of... Um, it reinforces that solidarity you have with 
your siblings and other people who are other and you have that sort of reinforced connection with them. Hmm. I get really friendly because it's kind of strange because I, I give them the benefit of the doubt because I tend to look at people as well. Like Michelle knows that if I'm looking at someone, I, I'm not yes. subtle about it. Like whether, <laughs> whether I'm interested or whether I find them attractive, I'm kind of like that. And, um, you know, sometimes it's just out of like, wow, I'm really interested. Like I, I'm gay myself, but when I was growing up, like say even in Brisbane and there was like a gay couple holding hands, I would look at them because I'm like, <laughs> wow, that's really interesting. So it doesn't always come from a place of... Um, malevolence or anything like that. So even today at the airport when I was coming in here, there was, um, you know, a senior gent, white Australian dude, and he was looking over and I was really fascinated by how, how fast I was typing and he was looking over and he looked at me and he's just like, is that in English? And, I, and I'm like, because, you know, his vision wasn't great, maybe he saw hiragana characters rather than English characters. And I'm, and I'm like, yes, it is. And I became really nice because in those moments whether you like it or not, you suddenly realise you, as a single person, are suddenly an ambassador for your entire race and you'd better be on really good behaviour. Makes you want to ask, you know, what, what are the things that we need to clear up now for our audience? Um, yeah. For example, you both have uh, uh, Western names. I have a Western name. Yep. Your mm. parents each have a Western name. That was common in Australia for Asian people in the 60s and the 70s mm -hmm. and the 80s, but it's actually not very common now. People mm. uh, have the names that they have, their Asian names. Were you given a, were you given a Chinese name? Because your dad's Chinese. Were yep. you given a Chinese name uh, as well? I have. It's my middle name. Right. So I'm Kuan Yi. Same with us. Same, Same with, with us. you guys. So yeah. I'm Yuk Nung. And I'm Man Yi. They, they say the real such nice now. Cantonese accents. <laughs> I, my Cantonese, well, I don't have any Cantonese. It's horrible. So that's oh, so is ours. So is ours. <laughs> but um, but uh, what do you think about that? There's there, how much culture meshing is okay? Um, what, 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 what should work in Australia? Should we learn people's actual names and, and just stick with them? Or should we go by Benjamin and, and Michelle and Andrea because that's a way of fitting into broader mm. Australian Anglo, Anglo culture? I mean, I don't know if there's a right or wrong, but what are your thoughts about that? There was a really interesting article the other day. I'm, sh I'm pretty sure you would have read it or seen mm. it around where um, they were talking about the idea of removing names from um, job applications. Mm, yes. oh, and yeah. that has been a big thing for me, like when I apply for a rental I won't put my middle, my middle name down because there is the danger that they'll think I'm an international student and not want to give me a property. And when you say danger, what do you mean by danger? <laughs> Literally that you won't get property or...? Uh, there is, you know, the question... You, know, you, you might meet the landlord and there's often that surprise that they have that you're... It's talking you, fish. You're the talking fish. <laughs> um, it's the danger of them not... Not you know not being you not being dependable or them or you being foreign and then not being able to trust you, um, so you sort of want to remove that and the same sort of thing applies to the job applications where, you know, employers are missing out on these employees who have incredible credentials but they're just being completely overlooked because of just face value discrimination. Yeah, and this isn't paranoia by the way. Like you guys might have read this study where the, where mm. it's done in Australia every few years mm. and they send out resumes to different companies throughout the country, and it's exactly the same resume, and then you've got uh, distinctly Anglo names on some of them, you've got distinctly Asian names on some of them, and distinctly, I don't know what you call Arab, like Arab, Arab names, names. On, on, on some of them mm. as well. And, you know, if you're, if you're Hussein or Chang, you do get significantly less bites even with the same CV. And that's fascinating because I doubt any of those people recruiting people for jobs or, say, landlords or whatever would say that they're racist. And I, don't, I wouldn't think they are as well. But there are these subliminal prejudices that we don't address and we're not 
aware of all of us all of us absolutely so so i think you're completely right with that sort of stuff mm. because we're kind of lucky because our last name's law like if you didn't meet us, we could be related to Jude Law, for instance, <laughs> um, which I maintain I am. Well, uh, you're, you're equally as cool as each other, yeah, so, you, you know, you're you. halfway <laughs> there, I suppose. Ho is slightly harder, but anyway, you know, <laughs> we, we get there. Um, but I guess it brings us towards our portrayal of Australians in things like mass media, and you mm. both work in the media and, and in all of the different uh, mediums, you know, you write, you're, you're working in theatre, television and so on. Um, what I think is interesting is that what you've done, instead of um, having a broad commentary on this stuff, you've plumbed your family history. Oh, yeah. uh, now, if, <laughs> if there, I think, is uh, an area of significant danger for any writer, as well as opportunity, but significant danger, it must be plumbing your family history. Mm. I don't know that I've ever seen it done quite as thoroughly as in the family <laughs> law. Um, and for those of you who have uh, not read the book uh, and you have a little bit of an issue with profanity, I feel like I'm doing the ABC thing <laughs> here now, um, I recommend that you watch the television series. Um, the Profanity is absent, uh, and that might make it a little bit more palatable. For those of you who love your profanity, get right into the book because it's very funny <laughs> and very rude. But the things that you've written about your family, I've never seen anybody write about anybody close to them. I'm amazed <laughs> that you're talking to each other. I'm amazed <laughs> that your mother is still talking to you. Why did you decide to, to tell such honest and frank things about your family? It seems very un-Asian mm. in a way. Yeah, well, I guess in many ways our parents are very un-Asian in the... In the same sense in that they're also incredibly Asian. You know, our, our dad w worked seven days in a Chinese restaurant and then a Thai he's restaurant. He's eaten dog before. And our <gasps> mum can yeah. be quite superstitious and traditional. But then on the flip side, you know, she's never been a tiger mum. Yeah. Most of us are in the arts. Um, she's very supportive very of everything. <laughs> very shameful. Um, she's very supportive. But for me, I guess writing about the family has never been a conscious decision. I think for me, it's probably just long-term therapy. <laughs> 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 so... <laughs> I, I guess I, for me, I fell into writing not as a career choice because we all know there's no money in it. Um, it's for me, it's you know a form of catharsis and connection. And I guess for for me personally, growing up feeling quite isolated and disconnected from people, it just was a natural thing for me to turn to. And um, to write about family was I, for me, writing is just a way to more clearly articulate things in my own mind and explain mm. things to myself. Mm. So things that I've grappled with in my own life, to write about them is sort of a way for me to cope with them. Mm. Mm. And I think, look, if, if you've read the book, if you've seen the show, if you've actually met our mother in real life, you'll have an understanding that her sense of boundaries is like several hundred kilometres west of Wrongtown. <laughs> and um, so she's always been like really open. And I think, th I don't think that's a necessarily a Chinese trait, whatever, you know, white it trait, Chinese trait. We're always making these distinctions. And I don't think it's about that anyway. Um, but I think it's I think it's just her. You know, she's always been super open. Maybe it's to do with having five kids. There's no mystery anymore about anything. Um, and she's always been super encouraging. And I think as time goes on as well, like both you and I, in our own writing, get a sense of the boundaries that we don't want to push. Like, because our family has such broad boundaries in terms of discussing family issues and bodily issues and all that sort of stuff, we know that we're the territory we don't want to tread. The family law, for instance, a lot of the content of that book is written about, you know, me as, as a young kid, you know, or a teenager. And that's way in my past. And I feel like I can write about that safely because... I kind of know where I stand on that. And 
enough time has passed that the tragedy is now comedy. <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I feel I feel that's quite safe to write about because it's stories that you you know we, we tell in our family constantly, 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 and it gets translated into myth and legend anyway, which is why I feel more comfortable writing it and I think our family tends to yeah. forgive us quite a bit yeah well I'm glad they forgive you <laughs> because I was going to ask what do your family think about these deeply personal observations that you're sharing about siblings yeah. and about parents um well, how do I feel about that I remember when Ben's book first came out and dad was really quite I remember Ben was quite nervous about mm. dad's reaction um and he was quite philosophical about it and said that you know, I'm not going to read it. <laughs> um, he, was too bu- he was too busy. He was too, too busy. busy. He was he working was seven days a, a week, 365 days a year. But he said, look, I'm not going to read it, but, you know, I know that audiences are smart enough to know that it is one person's perspective and it's one person's truth. And if it makes you happy to write about that and it gives you comfort, then I'm happy for you. Hmm. Yeah. At a professional level, what do you get out of, uh, what does a reader get out of a memoir written by a young man about his boyhood? I don't know. You guys tell me. <laughs> uh, no, um, look. I, I, it's when I when I wrote my book, when I wrote my first book. It's not like I, I don't think I was even aware of what what I was writing or why I was writing it or at the time. I just thought they were really funny stories, and I think it was like a really great chance for me to reflect on our family's history and what it all meant. It was actually a really good opportunity for me to fill in some gaps because. If you, all of us know to some extent what, a, what our family history is, but if you sit down and write it and it's like, this is what actually happened, you start realising very quickly there are huge gaps in your knowledge, there are huge gaps in logic as well. Like, why would they do that if that, if that happened, blah, blah, blah. And so, you know, my background is feature journalism, so I actually just got to sit down with my family and interview them like a journalist. And I'm like, oh, my God, I didn't know all that history. So part of it was curiosity, um, which is why I wrote the book. But... You know, in terms of what, what readers got out of it in the end, because, you know, just before the book came out, I was, I was quite uh, worried that um, my publishers has made a mistake. I think all authors go through this because, you know, it's a, it's, a, it's a book about growing up gay and Chinese in the 1990s in coastal Queensland as, you marri- as your parents' marriage falls apart. You know, it's not the classic Australian story, exactly. No, I just it's a classic was, Tim Winton. Exactly, yes. exactly. Which is Rebecca Gibney will star in it. Yeah. <laughs> and I just thought, uh, it's, a, it's a bit obscure. I don't know really who will identify with it. And then in the end, you know, we found, as I think you've found with your writing as well, like people identified with it for different reasons. People identified with it because they were Chinese or Asian Australian. People identified it with because they'd grown up in Queensland or they got all the 90s references or their their family was huge, sprawling and inappropriate or their parents' marriage had combusted at a very young age. And then I realised, you know, it's not so much about ethnicity or it's not so much about my family. It's about... It's about all of our reading experiences. When you read a novel or a book or a memoir and, and that family experience or that person's experience is, is completely alien to yours and yet it still resonates for this reason and that reason and that reason. People have um, gotten things out of it that I, I could never have anticipated. Mm. Writing is one thing and television as a medium is an entirely different thing. I'm, I'm actually, I'm just curious how many of you have seen uh, The Family Law on SBS? Just raise your hand even if you haven't. Uh, <laughs> that's actually that's a good rate within the audience. That's, um, that's pretty high. Um, 
What was it like for you, for you guys? <laughs> There's a nice, if you haven't seen it, go and have a look at the SBS website. It's quite interesting. There's lovely little video vignettes of different parts of the making of, and um, it's actually, there are actually some quite nice ones, including a sequence where you are on set <laughs> doing the shoot for the very first episode, which I don't know whether you saw it. Just in the very start of the program, um, there's a little cameo when they're in the, in the restaurant and having um, Ben's birthday cake, and there's a pan of the restaurant, and over in the corner there's a family all singing the Chinese birthday song, and it's actually you yeah. and your family. Yep. You actually got to um, to show us what it was like meeting the actors who played you. Yeah. What did that feel like? What was it like seeing your life represented on the screen by other people? Oh, it was a lot of fun. Um, the girl who plays me, Vivian, she's 10 years old in real life, maybe 11 now, and she's just really, really sweet. She's and like gorgeous. me at that age, very disgusting. <laughs> 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 and she just got the character of Michelle as a 10-year-old straight away. Yeah. And she, it was funny the similarities we had because when I was growing up, I had guinea pigs and she had guinea pigs. And it was just a lot for us to bond over. And she was very sweet and very yes. open with me. And the first thing she asked me when she met me was, when you were small, were you disgusting? <laughs> <laughs> like, I like this kid. <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty nerve-wracking thing. I mean, it's a, it's a sociopathic exercise to write a book about your family. And it's a psychopathic exercise to write a show based on that book and I think it's just like another level to have to be involved in the process where the, now people are cast as your family as well so I, I, I don't know if I've even talked to you about this but like on the day on the day <laughs> I was I was pretty anxious you know because you do have the like to, to work on a tv show you're so busy that often you don't even get to step back and question even what you're doing and then the day arrives where I'm like okay I'm having a slight out-of-body experience because my real family is just about to come on set where these people are playing us and they're using our real names. It's like I've wandered on the set of being John Malkovich. It's really mm. weird. And, um, and so, but, but I couldn't show that anxiety because, because I didn't want my family to be anxious and I didn't want the actors to be anxious because I knew for them it would be a really strange thing as well because they're playing and studying these characters that are inspired by people in real life as well. What does that do to your brain as an actor to actually meet them as well? And um, and so then they met, and it was actually the most joyous. It was like one of the funnest, happiest days of my of my life. It was, um, it was, it really was. And I know that sounds so sickeningly syrupy, but it was kind of joyous to see everyone have like a mini me version of themselves. And because they're significantly younger than all of us, my parents included, um, you you felt quite sort of protective of them. Like you've got this like really adorable. 10 year old on set and I've got like Tristan Go, who's just like magnificent as Benjamin Law as well and my parents were even on set prior to that day because they were helping the actors with their Cantonese slang and pronunciation so they actually came on board as kind of consultants at one stage too. You couldn't help with that. I could not <laughs> help with that no no. Yeah, the language kind of goes after I, a bit. Yeah. In the business of uh, theatre writing, which is something that you're immersed in at the moment, Michelle, did you did it make you think a lot about the manipulation of characters at all? Um, there's there's your character, you in front of you, and mm. you're now in the business of writing and manipulating these characters. It's been interesting because I haven't really noticed up until this point, but a lot of my long form stuff, and I was working on a book of essays that I ended up scrapping, but now that I'm working on this feature length play, it always comes back to this idea of mothers and children. <laughs> And I didn't realise that was such a big theme for me. And Very then it important. hit me in the face and I was like, this is devastating. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's been interesting because now that I'm writing... Um, one of the protagonists of the play is this very fierce Australian, very inappropriate um, Chinese mother. And I just realised, you know, there's 
there's a, a bit of a blur between uh, fact and fiction and how, you know, that manipulation of character, you can't really avoid it in your own work. It does tend to trickle down, even though they are heavily fictionalised. Mm. Wow, it's interesting, isn't it? A, um, a large part, too, of uh, the work that you've, you've published so far has been comedy. And I think um, it's interesting that at the moment there's a, a large debate that's been going on for some time about the use of culture and particularly ethnic culture mm. in comedy or in a comedic manner, mm -hmm. if you like. And I mean, I know we've come a long way from Acropolis now, which was groundbreaking in its time, mm. but we wouldn't make that kind of program today. And I think we're all very thankful that wog-faced characters like Con the Fruiterer are a part of our very distant past, <laughs> which is terrific, I think. But on the other hand, we've got programs like Meet the Habibs, which is yet to hit the screen, mm -hmm. so none of us have seen it. We don't know what that's going to be like. Um, and comedians, I think, talking about how culture is sometimes not appropriate when mm. in certain circumstances. For you, in this kind of work, where is that line? And should you ever cross it? Well, it, it's interesting. When we were writing The Family Law, we very quickly knew from day one that the show was not about race. And that's not to mean that the characters are emptied of race, because that's impossible. They're obviously Chinese-Australian characters, and a lot of their personalities, a lot of their interactions, a lot of what they do with their lives are going to be informed by that, as, as are white people, you know? Just as all of us are informed by our cultural backgrounds, these people were going to be Chinese-Australians, but it wasn't going to be a show about finding your place in the world as a Chinese-Australian family, even though I love stuff like that. Like, and I think that stuff totally has its place. We were going to write a comedy about a marriage breakup because that's the funniest thing in the world. And, um, and so, and I think a part of that, and we were very, very lucky in the writer's room for the family law and Michelle was with us in the development stages of the, of the show as well. But, you know, two of our executive producers, Tony Ayres and Debbie Lee, are Chinese Australian as well. And they are the Chinese media mafia, as we call them. And, um, and they knew very early on, I mean, even though the book in some ways does explore issues of racial identity and cultural identity and the fact that I can't speak Cantonese very well and all that sort of stuff, we decided that season one's arc was going to be about Jenny and Danny and their marriage falling apart at the seams. And as much as those specifics about um, comedy and how it comes from malapropism and misunderstandings and, you know, in the latest episode where Jenny said, scared out your living shit, you know, <laughs> like that, that sort of stuff will definitely come into it. You know, you've got the nosy Chinese aunties as well because that was very much a part of our upbringing as well, you know, especially when my parents were breaking up. You've got all of that stuff, but... Um, it's at not the, the centre of it. It's not at the centre of it. It's not the plot. That's, that was the difference for us. But I don't think it's illegitimate for other shows to make race, racial identity, exploring cultural stuff, the plot, because I think that's perfectly fine as well. Mm. There's also the issue that we are aware of and other people have brought up as well as when you do write about um, culture or you're coming from a place where you're writing about culture, there's the danger of you know, pandering to stereotypes or mm. reinforcing them or creating new stereotypes. Um, and that was... Um, we sort of dealt with that a lot with the release of Should Asian Mothers Say, which is just a little um, toilet reading comedy book. Keep it by your toilet. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, you know, the, the thing with stereotypes is they're born out of truth, but they, they become problems when those stereotypes are the basis of your character yeah. or they're two-dimensional or you don't see them or they're side characters. Or that's the only thing about them that you do see. Like, I, I've, got a, I've got a theory about stereotypes because it's interesting when the family law came out and even when the trailer came up, 
a lot of people were questioning or even accusing the show of, uh, are you just creating a whole new suite of stereotypes? And I'm like, well, I'm sorry that my dad worked in a Chinese restaurant, but, <laughs> you know, like, I can't really change it. I'm sorry that my parents had children. Um, it's you know, also like, never an accusation that pops up when you see shows about Anglo-Australians. Yeah, it's just like, oh, my God, that's such a stereotypical so white, white person. Um, they're using sea salt, uh, you know, that sort of stuff. <laughs> or they're listening to Radio National. No, like, like, but, um, you know, like, all that sort of stuff, you do have to manage as well. And I think, for me, a stereotype is not a stereotype when they're a three-dimensional character. Who's, who's convincing and as complex and as three-dimensional three and as flawed as anyone that you know, they're not a stereotype when there are other people to compare them to because often, you know, one single characters have to carry the burden of representation for the entire race because they're the only non-white character in an entire show, mm -hmm. for instance. So do you see them relate to other people of the same ethnicity? And is there contrast and comparison? Is there diversity? Um, so there are all these things that I think can mitigate those sorts of, those sorts of dangers. Speaking about shit Asian mothers say, one of the... <laughs> What are the introductory notes? Notice that the introductions seem to go on for pages and pages. Anyway. Um, We're writers. Yeah, there's, there's a note here that says um, only Asian people and non-Asian people who intend to give this book to an Asian person are allowed to buy this book. If you aren't Asian, and by not Asian we mean white, Latinos and black people are Asian in spirit. Just go with us here. And you are purchasing this book to ridicule our proud cultures and mothers. We will see you in court. <laughs> who's allowed to make the joke? <laughs> exactly. We were who, chatting who about, allowed? We were chatting about this earlier, mm. and I think it is very much a case of, you know, you can badmouth your own parents, but once someone else says something mean about your mum or your dad, you're just like, that's it. Yeah. We're taking you to town. <laughs> My mum may be a freak, and yes, I do hate her in this moment, but I will destroy you for badmouthing her. <laughs> you know, like, it's, you're totally protective. And I think the, the funny thing about that book is, you know, it's kind of an in-joke amongst our, amongst our mates who also have Asian parents as well. But the funny thing is when we released it as well, because it's not, it's not a novel, it's not a three-dimensional portrayal of, of parenthood and all of the horrors and ecstasies that come with it by any means. It's, it's every stereotype about Asian mothers. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm. And I think that's the, that's the pastime we all share with everyone, which is taking the piss out of our parents, you know, <laughs> and our parents just happen to be Chinese. Mm. Mm. Well, um, you're here as uh, one of the one of the feature acts, if you like, for this excellent exhibition that the National mm -hmm. Library has on, um, and I think that it's also a chance for us then to reflect on culture. And I'm wondering whether you can shed a little bit of light for the audience on what Chinese culture actually is, because we were having a chat earlier about how we use the word Chinese, but it's a terrible misnomer because mm. it's it assumes that. China is monocultural, and if you look at a culture, a country the size, physical size of China, it's much bigger even than mm. Europe. And we are quite at home with understanding that Europe has a lot of different cultures and languages and ways of being in the world. But when we get to China, we just talk about Chinese, and that's it. You know, yeah. you do touch a little bit in your book on um, the, the differences uh, between, say, Hong Kong Chinese and Malaysian Singapore Chinese, and then uh, we are seeing um, those those differences actually play out in Australia at the moment. Mm. You know, mm. where we're seeing generations of of um, southern Cantonese Chinese grow older and you're seeing a much younger wave of, um, of uh, Mandarin-speaking Beijingers come to, yeah. to Australia. So what, what can you tell us about Chinese culture that 
um, our audience doesn't necessarily know that we just think that you need to know in order to be able to get by these days? Well, because we are the cultural authorities on China, let me just tell you. Um, <laughs> totally an awesome yeah. thing. How, how many languages do you speak? A half a Chinese language? One and a language? quarter. Oh, one quarter. and a quarter, maybe. Yeah, um, we, we understand Cantonese, but just responding to it is very tricky. And Michelle and I, we're the worst of the five. Like, we speak Cantonese like we've been bashed. Um, <laughs> and, um, no, but, but what's, what's really interesting is I think you raise a really good point, Andrew, which is... I always try to emphasise cultures with an mm -hmm. S. You know, when you talk about Indigenous culture, I mean, it's made up of so many Indigenous groups and languages as well, yeah. and similarly with Chinese. I mean, I was watching, I was watching SBS cross-promotion. I was watching SBS <laughs> uh, news the other day. Not and it was, about, it was about <laughs> the threat of, um, of Cantonese not becoming, like, used as much as an official language, especially in what? Hong Kong really? broadcasting mm. and in Guangzhou and stuff like that. Right. And, well, in Guangdong province generally. And, um, and, and it brought up all these facts and figures I did not know. Like, apparently a third of the citizens of mainland China can't speak Mandarin Chinese, you know? And that's mm. because there are so many languages in China, so many home languages in different provinces and stuff, that, you know, the, the whole enterprise of introducing um, Mandarin, you know, the common language, nationwide is still an ongoing one. So that even surprised me because, you know, our background is Hong Kong Chinese. Mum was born in Malaysia. She's Chinese. Dad was born in Guangdong province. Then they met in Hong Kong. So even having to explain our trajectory mm -hmm. is, is kind of, it takes a while as well. Chinese people have to do this with each other. Yeah, That's right, don't exactly, we? exactly. Mm. So when people say, you know, where are you from or where are your parents from, I'm just like, okay, so. Yeah. Let me take you back to the beginning of time. Yeah, basically. <laughs> <laughs> where are you from? Well. Yeah, yeah. But it's a, it is a case of cultures within cultures and even just learning from you know, our parents who um, our mum quite strongly identifies as being Hong Kongese. And even then, you know, they've got their own prejudices and um, <laughs> she's incredibly westernised because Hong Kong was under British rule until quite recently. And, you know, learning about the rivalries between different communities. Yeah, Intra-Asian intra racism is fascinating. You have no idea. Yeah, and, and even not right. just racism, but discussion <laughs> mm -hmm. discussion about, you know, the differences between the different the different um, groups of Chinese people as well. You know, because it, coming from Hong Kong, and I just went there last year and talking to our cousins, because Hong Kong's going through a really interesting period at the moment in mm. terms of their relationship with mainland China. And, and, it is, and it is a tense one to the point where a lot of Hong Kong Chinese refuse to even... Um, label themselves as Chinese nowadays. They see themselves as Hong Kong first and foremost. And I'm like, mm. that even surprised me. You know, mm. that's, that's a new development that I wasn't, that I wasn't aware of. Mm. So we're a complex people. <laughs> it's true. I mean, Chinese people speak about each other like English people speak about French people and vice mm. versa. I mean, the, the divisions can be quite profound, mm. can't they? So that's something which is interesting for you to consider when you do have a look at this exhibition, that um, you're not looking at a single or mono culture. You're yeah. looking yeah. at the product of multiple cultures, um, some of which were very scholarly, right down to mm. some of which were, um, were very much um, farming-based, I think. In Australia too now, that is playing out as well and uh, it leads into the way that we think about um, Chinese people, Asian people in Australia. You know, we've gone from, we were just discussing, um, the very first Chinese in Australia from several hundred years ago, which is when Anglo people came as well, yep. you know. So you've got um, then the Gold Rush Chinese, the Yellow Peril, mm. uh, the Chinese restaurant in every town, most <laughs> of whom were um, Cantonese, yep. uh, as we know. These days, though, it does seem to be more about students taking over our schools and rich businessmen buying up our houses and farms and I think you could probably take a certain kind of dialogue from the 80s and you could take out Japanese and you could insert the word Chinese and it would yeah. be pretty much yep. the same. How do you see Chinese and Australian cultures intersecting differently now and where do you think that's going? 
Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, nowadays, I mean, I'm just going to broaden the conversation because nowadays we've got one in ten Australians have significant Asian heritage. Mm. So one in ten Australians are, are Asian Australian, and um, you know, common Chinese surnames always rank within the top ten in Australian cities as well. So we are becoming one, a very multicultural society. And we, we, we've we've been multicultural for a long time. By some measures, we're more multicultural than the US, UK and Canada in terms of how many how many places of origin um, Australians have as well. So we're, we're incredibly diverse, but I still think, I mean, at least within the media, which is the realm that you and I work mm. in, well, that all of us work mm. in, that is still not quite reflected. So I think we're still at this... We're not, I don't think we're at an adolescence with multiculturalism. I think we're at an adolescence with actually understanding and exporting that image of ourselves elsewhere as well. I mean, television's incredibly white. Radio's, even though you don't hear radio, I mean, you don't see radio, radio's incredibly white We were having that discussion well. a moment ago. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's surprising considering what, what we look like when we walk down the street, when we're at the shops, when we're at friends' places for dinner. My litmus test... Uh, for because you know someone was saying, well, how diverse does it have to be? Like, if you want TV to be more diverse, what does it look like? And I was thinking about that. What is the yardstick? And I think it's um, Central Station Tunnel in Sydney at peak hour, <laughs> because that is like you are walking through the United Nations, mm. and that's what our cities look like, um, and increasingly our regions look like mm. as well. So I feel like that this is an ongoing conversation. I don't think. Um, I think for for the large part, you know, that really toxic and frank racism that you do see in parts of Europe, for instance, um, is not as much of a problem here. What I think we have a problem with is not acknowledging codified and subtle racism. We're really good. You know, Waleed Ali had this really great op-ed about this, but we're really Mm -hmm. awesome at calling out the unhinged people on public transport having a spray at the non-white person because we can say, that's racism, that's racism, and I stand against that. When, you know, in a lot of those cases, those people are quite severely ill as well. And But I feel like, like we were talking about with subliminal prejudices and biases, racism manifests in so many ways. How does that conversation about real estate prices and buying into the, to the Australian market where where do we draw the line with where that conversation goes? Um, you know, when we talk about, oh, well, the Oscars are so white because maybe there just weren't many non-white actors who were very good that year. I mean, I mean, how do we feel about that conversation? And when you start being called out for saying, like, Australian TV is too white, people do get really defensive. And I think we have to ask ourselves why we get defensive. And if we do get defensive, does that is that an indication that there's a problem? Mm. I'm quietly optimistic about it. Um, I've had a lot of friends who are working in the screen industry, media industry, who always say, you know, you have to move to the US. It's so much more diverse. The, the, The path is so much more straightforward than in Australia. And to a certain extent, I do agree. Um, I have been overseas and I've seen the differences, but part of me is excited to be in Australia because I feel like tides are turning and there is that gradual not only a tolerance but this acceptance and understanding of that is what Australia is now and I'm going to be on a crass level just (laughs) on the streets like it's so rare to see a mixed race couple where the man is Asian (laughs) can you imagine how revolutionary my parents were Uh, (laughs) five years ago but that's changing so much and just 
So you're saying there's equal opportunity dating There is now. equal opportunity <laughs> Tinder. <laughs> <laughs> or Grinder, as the case may exactly. be. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Well, it's, I'm, I'm pleased that you're doing the work that you're doing in the media from that perspective because you're introducing characters who are ordinary people living Australian lives who mm. happen to be Chinese. Mm. And uh, it's a part of that diversification. It's an area, I think, um, that uh, we all as media consumers should be concerned about. Does uh, what we, does what we um, consume actually reflect what's going on in Gungahlin or, um, you know, yeah. at the Canberra Centre on a weekend, the kinds of uh, mm -hmm. communities And I think, like, see. so much of the positive feedback, as much, like, for the TV show, for instance, because, you know, it's the first Asian-Australian family on screen at the centre of the show, and a lot of the um, positive feedback has, of course, come from Asian-Australians and especially Chinese-Australians, but so much of it ha has been coming from non-Asian-Australians because it's just this relief, like, oh, my God, thank you for breaking the monotony. I mean, we're pretty good with, like, cooking shows, pretty good with reality <laughs> shows, um, <laughs> talent shows, renovation shows, not so much. It's pretty white. Um, but, uh, that's because Chinese people aren't very handy, isn't that yeah, right? Yeah, that's true, that's true. We like to buy new. Uh, but... Um, but yeah, I, I think we we that I, there is that kind of turning point. You know, tides mm -hmm. are starting to change. Like for instance, when I was saying Tony Ayres and Debbie Lee are the executive producers of this show, they're also the executive producers of Maximum Choppage, starring Lawrence Lerm. Which Nowhere had, Boys. Yep, Nowhere Boys as well. Um, and also Real Housewives of Melbourne is pretty diverse. That's that's made by Matchbox Pictures as well. Different crew. And a but Muslim still Australian romantic comedy that's First coming out. Muslim Australian rom com mm -hmm. as well. And with something like Nowhere Boys. Um, with something like, you know, the shows that they're making, like The Family World, Maximum Choppage, so they, they are driving an agenda because unlike other territories like Canada, the US and UK, there are no diversity mechanisms in Australia whatsoever, which is why the work that you're doing in radio is so interesting, having that discussion, how do we um, foster diversity in workplaces, especially where the media, which is, which is obliged to represent our country back to us, how do we foster that sort of stuff? And without those mechanisms in place, it's just people like mm. Tony and Debbie just saying, let's put an Asian in there. Like, <laughs> I, I'm not going to make this show unless one of the four leads of this children's show is, is non-white, sorry. And I think the more that we have those conversations and be quite frank about how we feel about them, the healthier our media representation will be. Mm, I think so. Well, thank you for leading out on that and stay tuned for more work 